Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargreave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're talking to Ed Wallace, Director of Policy and Engagement at the Community Organisation Membership Body Locality, about what the fuel and energy crisis means for charities. At this point, Russell, we should note that this is the first time that you and I have been paired together on the podcast. It's a very exciting time. It's a big moment for us. It's a big moment for the podcast listeners. I think this is what they've really been, been waiting for all these years. Uh, Rebecca and Emily have always done such an amazing job. But I think what everyone knows is we need a little more in the way of middle class men chatting and just very confidently putting their opinions out there as if there's no argument with the facts. Um, so we're here. We're here to finally deliver into that void. Thank God. <laughs> Indeed. But if we are to form a new dynamic duo, which famous pairing would you most want us to be like yeah i never thought i'd have to think about this andy and i for those who can't imagine it sit upstairs next to each other and although we sort of chunter away at each other all day we don't actually kind of have to sit and think about what our relationship is and suddenly <laughs> these sort of profound thoughts i don't know could we be Mawson lewis Mawson lewis i could be the um aged uh slightly too serious guy who sort of sits listening to opera music all day sounds just like me and you can be the chippy young northerner. Is the, that you? The naive kind of <laughs> eternal optimistically uh, <laughs> young buck. Yeah, I mean, except to the fact that I am older than you, but... You would love to be thought of as a young buck. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> um, what about uh, Shaggy and Scooby? One for the kids there? Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, that requires both of us to be, well, versions of Dumb and Dumber probably, doesn't it? <laughs> if we're going to do that. And one of us is wholly reliant on snacks. <laughs> which might, in your case, be wholly appropriate. Andy refuses to drink tea after 12 o'clock because it's like it's got too much caffeine, whereas oh, I sit there I with um, coffee and donuts all the way through the day to sustain myself, which, to be fair, is a more traditional approach to journalism. Indeed. Well, shall we get on with the main part of the podcast? Oh, there's more to do. Yes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see what we're doing. The cost of energy has been rising steeply since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in February. The research firm Cornwall Insight predicts the energy price cap for domestic customers, which was at £1,400 a year in October last year, is on track to rise to a heady £3,615 a year from January. Fuel prices were already rising before the war in Ukraine began, but the conflict has exacerbated the situation with a reduction in the use of Russian oil, increasing demand from other producers, putting up prices. With many UK charities already facing rising costs and increased demand for their services because of the cost of living crisis, we spoke to Ed Wallace, Head of Policy at the Community Organisation Support Charity Locality, about the energy situation. Ed, thanks very much for joining us. It's really good to have you with us. What is your assessment of how badly charities and community organisations will be affected by the fuel and energy crisis? So I think we're seeing two main aspects uh, to the impact. Uh, so the first is the impact on local people. So the people who community organisations were, were set up to serve. Um, and we're seeing kind of huge 
increase in demand for basic services. So that's particularly around food, so food pantries, food banks, uh, provision of uh, affordable hot meals, um, but also around mental health, money advice, kind of other services. So really community organizations stepping in, uh, picking up the pieces uh, around the impacts on local people. But then the second thing is the impact on the organizations themselves. So we've had lots of of locality members say to us that this current crisis is worse than COVID in terms of the financial impact it's having on them as organisations. And it's that kind of double whammy of the kind of rising demand for services and that huge increase in costs. So particularly on energy bills. So, you know, energy bills going up kind of 200%. Um, that type of level. Also, lots of locality members will uh, own and manage buildings. So kind of building-related costs have uh, gone through the roof. And staff costs as well are increasing, trying to um, you know, increase wages as much as they can uh, to keep uh, keep pace with, with inflation. And yeah, it's not like income has gone up uh, to support those, those rising costs. Inflation is impacting, you know, how much grants and contracts are worth. Um, And all the while, the emergency funding, which was there through COVID, isn't there anymore. So I think that's really that kind of the fact that this is worse than COVID is, is there isn't the support there in place. And I think probably the final thing to reflect on is that this is kind of happening coming out of COVID, but there's also, it's been a kind of long decade really of, of, of crisis for uh, community organisations with the kind of impacts of long-term austerity. So this is happening at a time when pressure has been building and building. And you mentioned sort of what sound like middle to long term pressures, things like, you know, growing demand, income not keeping up with it, stuff that your average finance person would think, well, I've got to look 12 months or 18 or 24 months ahead because it's going to cause real problems. But how immediate are things like fuel bills, which is sort of a pressure on cash flow that might even be sort of existential to some charities? Is it as serious as that? Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, there very much is real pressure um, right now. I think that the organizations we speak to, the sense is that they're kind of just about managing um, at the moment. And really, I think that is a testament to the spirit, determination, flexibility of community leaders kind of finding a way, um, having that resilient spirit, you know, what we saw through COVID, you know, when things were incredibly bad, you know, we would still do surveys of locality members and, you know, 85% of them would say they're optimistic about the future, uh, despite the, you know, the fact that it was quite hard to see um, the, the optimism sometimes. So I think it is that they're, they're kind of managing, they're, they're doing what they can. But things are really tough. And then the real concern is about kind of what comes next. So there's a bit of a kind of known unknown uh, around uh, future increases in the autumn. And I think the conversations we're having with with organizations is about how do you even really start to plan for that? You, you know, you're already kind of probably at the very top of your headroom and you know that there's going to be a significant increase to come but you don't quite know how much it's going to be so that's why at the moment we're really thinking as an organization about what do we need to do to to support community organizations through this and and why i think it's important to start putting measures in place kind of now which can start to to deal with that those kind of coming pressures around things like energy sufficiency Mm. and where do you think it's going to be felt most keenly um, particularly among your members and other organisations that you're in touch with? Is it rural charities or 
places that kind of need an almost constant stream of energy. You mentioned the organizations that sort of run buildings. What's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, clearly the pressures are pretty cross-cutting, but then, yeah, I think that having a more intense impact in certain areas. So, yeah, organizations which are most dependent on fuel uh, being hit hardest. So for us, kind of community transport, community swimming pools, uh, you know, real pressures there. Also, yeah, I think definitely kind of rural service and kind of rural services as well. I think, Buildings are um, a particular pressure point, um, asset-owning organizations. I mean, these are often kind of larger, older buildings. They may be, you know, it might be a particularly resonant local building that the community's come together and, and saved, but it's a kind of, it might be a historic building or an older one, which won't be particularly energy efficient. So an old secondary school, an old town hall, those kinds of buildings, they're very leaky energy-wise. Um, so there's particular costs uh, associated with them. But I think really it's the most disadvantaged areas where the impact's going to be kind of most keenly felt. So I've talked about that double whammy of rising pressure on services. It's the areas of the greatest need where that that pressure is going to be the highest. And also where, you know, there's less scope to pass on increased costs uh, to the people that, that, that use your uh, you know your building or your or, or your charity. Um, you know, if we're thinking about organisations that might earn their own income through a community cafe, these are kind of fifty p cups of teas rather than three pound fifty lattes. So there's limited scope for for for, for what you can do and to, to to pass on those those rising costs. So um, yeah, I think particular impacts in uh, the most disadvantaged areas. On tears because there's such a driving part of the community groups that locality works with um what sort of impact are rising energy prices and other bits of the economy going wrong what impact does that have on volunteers yeah i think i think it is having an impact and also i think the the context is again important we heard a lot over the last couple of years with the impact of the pandemic that uh volunteering numbers have, have been on uh, the decline. Lots of community organisations are reliant on older people uh, volunteering, who are you know un- obviously being more cautious during the the pandemic, um, and many of whom have kind of not necessarily returned uh, to playing those kind of important roles and seen it as an opportunity to retire. And we're not seeing that older generation being replaced by a, a new generation of, of, of volunteers. So I think. We're coming into this with already some challenges around uh, volunteers, and then you know those increased costs are going to uh, you know have make that impact more uh, severe. So fuel costs is a big one. Charities have been calling on the chancellor to increase the uh, approved mileage allowance payment. Um, which I think was last reviewed in 2012. So obviously significant rises um, over that period. So I think there are things which charities are kind of highlighting um, around volunteers that, that could make a difference. But I think it's also important to recognise that you know the costs of uh, covering 
those volunteers will then be passed on to the organizations themselves so um it's a the overall picture of support is is what needs looking at and then think as well as the impact on volunteers it is also the impact on paid staff lots of locality members um are run by paid staff as well as volunteers and so those same kind of impacts are affecting them and the the um you know the impact on wages um, as well, or you know, already cash-strapped organisations trying to do the best that they can to um, you know give pay rises, but we know it's a problem across the economy um, to to try and and uh, keep pace with increasing inflation. So I think there's challenges for volunteers, but also for for paid staff as well. And to really sort of get to the number of it, what what can charities and community groups do, if anything, at this point to manage their energy bills in the face of such rising prices yeah i mean it's it's very hard isn't it i mean these are kind of global forces um that, that are impacting and it's difficult to think what single organizations can can do to take action the community organizations we talk to are in the best position are the ones who have been on lock, locked into long-term deals but obviously these will come to an end and those kind of good deals don't exist anymore. We, at Locality, we've got a, a, an energy action group which kind of members can can join and there's, you know, there's a bulk purchasing that, that happens for, for energy there. It's having a small impact. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that can help on the margins, but it's clearly not going to impact kind of, you know, a 200% increase in, in your bills. So we, I think it's about thinking about how to manage it. So we've, uh, you know, we've been providing quite a lot of kind of HR support advice to community organisations to, to think about how um, those impacts on the organisation that can be, that can be managed. And then uh, I think it's then thinking about the, the, the longer term things that, that can be done. So, we again heard during the pandemic about lots of locality members who were kind of used lockdown and maybe when buildings were closed to to try and make their buildings more energy efficient. So that's clearly going to be an increasing priority, I think, for organisations. Obviously, that requires investment, so you need to think about where the money's coming from. Um, but I think uh, energy efficiency measures now to support, you know, drive down costs in the long term is the thing that we really need to be focusing on. And is there any kind of help that community groups, I mean, you mentioned earlier the thing about some community groups having very sort of old leaky buildings. Is there much help out there for those sort of organisations? So I think there isn't a huge amount out there um, at the moment. Um, there are a few kind of uh, schemes which, you know, different funders or social investment is, is, is one way of kind of accessing that. But that can will only kind of work for certain types of, of organisations. So I think there is a real kind of gap, really, in terms of support. So one of the big things that we're calling for is a new uh, major push on energy efficiency um, that, that's funded and, uh, you know, really focus on community buildings to, to, to help them take those steps now. So you mentioned energy efficiency, which is the sort of thing that governments do talk a lot about. We wait and see whether or not they actually deliver on that. And also things like the kind of mileage and fuel allowances that volunteers can use. Are there other bits and pieces that government could do to step in here? Yeah, so we've got kind of four key things that, that we're uh, pushing for that we think will make um, a difference. So the first thing is around the household support fund. So this really focuses in on you know what we can do to support 
local people and try and address some of those demand pressures. So um, as part of the chancellor's uh, or the former chancellor's uh, cost of living uh, support package, they increased the household support fund by 500 million and extended that into March next year. But we've heard that that fund has been really effective when the councils who are kind of uh, the, the funds are devolved to are working really closely in partnership with their local community organizations, co-designing how that fund is used, kind of plugging into existing support services being provided by community organizations. So so we think that to maximize the effectiveness of that new investment, then that support should be co-designed with local community organizations. And the second thing uh, that we're calling for is to trying to have a bit of impact on those short-term kind of cost pressures uh, around energy bills. So reducing the VAT, which community organizations, charities pay uh, on energy bills to, to zero. Um, that's not going to be a complete game changer, but I think it will provide some immediate relief and, and reduce some of that pressure in the short term um, if government was to do that. The third thing uh, that we're focusing in on is um, around multi-year contracts and grants and making sure that they uh, are able to reflect rising inflation. So there's been some research which was done by Pro Bono Economics, which found that a £100,000 grant uh, will be worth 88000 by 2024. So we're seeing grants and contracts, kind of the value of them to organisations inflated away over time, and that's only going to increase as inflation goes up. So grant giving organisations, contract managers need to be offering uh, mid-contract, mid-grant reviews to organisations uh, to allow for inflationary up lifts and obviously government's going to need to kind of put more money into things like local government to give them the headroom to to be able to to do that and then the fourth and final thing is the energy efficiency program that i've been talking about so acting kind of as soon as possible to prepare for the tougher times ahead so uh, funding to replace inefficient boilers insulate those kind of drafty uh, community buildings, installing LED lighting, those kinds of measures which can really improve the, the fabric of buildings and then you know, allow for even greater kind of energy efficiency measures to be taken uh, is a really important step to be taking as soon as we can. What would you say is your sort of number one top tip for community organisations to be, to be thinking about right now if you needed people to have one sort of main takeaway from your points today? As we've discussed, that this is a really incredibly challenging situation and there aren't obvious or kind of easy answers kind of out there. So I think the two, I'm going to say two things uh, rather than one, I'm sorry, um, is to kind of learn from each other uh, about kind of what's happening. So, you know, at Locality, we run lots of kind of networking events where we're kind of bringing together organizations in different parts of the country to try and share those kind of tips, that emerging best practice. This is a very live situation. You know, new ideas, new approaches are kind of happening in real time. So if we can kind of connect people to, to, to each other, then that's a really good way of kind of, you know, sharing problems and, uh, and, and finding out where the, you know, the potential solutions might be. But then the second thing I think is that, you know, this is going to require external support. It requires government and funders to, to kind of step in and, and, and do things. So I think we really need to be working 
collectively together, I think, as a sector um, to, to highlight the challenges, make the case for uh, some bold solutions um, to provide the, the support that's, that, that's needed. Ed Wallace, thanks very much for your time. Each week, we bring you a good news bulletin full of the positive or quirky news stories we've spotted in the sector. And this time we've got, well, both of those boxes fully ticked, I think, Russell, (laughs) haven't we? You can go first with the positive news story. Would you like to hear something lovely about museums, Andy? I would love to. So Exmouth Museum in Devon, and this is a bit of a tribute to Rebecca Cooney, our former colleague, who is very much not only a creature of the Southwest but also loved horses, ponies. I'm going to say they're more or less the same thing. Uh, The Exmouth Museum in Devon was once home to the local firehouse, and back in the Victorian era, horses were used to pull the equipment in and out of the building. So as part of their refurb, local media reported this week that the museum has created a beautiful mural of a horse to hang outside. I recommend our listeners go and have a look. It is genuinely a very nice picture of a horse's head, but the horse is missing something, and it has no name. And this is where we come in, because there is a contest now to name the horse, and the official unveiling of that name will be carried out by the mayor and a town crier later on this month. When the town crier does it, will he say, oh nay, oh nay? (laughs) Um, I should say there's a part later on for some puns, but Andy... I'm jumping the gun. We couldn't control him, so he's already brought it. We did did want to enter. Third Sector thought we could probably put in some pretty good ideas, but there are strict rules which rule us out. Uh, One of them is that apparently, quote, all silly names will be disqualified, presumably an attempt to make sure that kind of horsey McHorse face does not walk away with the victory. Um, And it's only open for children, (laughs) which ruins our fun. No matter how we behave in reality, um, we're probably not going to qualify. But if it's not horsey McHorse face, we have had a think about this. Andy, um, which charities do you think should have a go at this? Should we put forward first the Grand National Trust? Fantastic. I was thinking, big, we talked to locality earlier, other local charities, maybe we could have a neighbourly involved. <laughs> Beautifully performed. Or equally, Trots fan. <laughs> um, it's worth saying, when Andy came up with the pun Trots fan earlier, I fell off my chair laughing. Because it was of such <laughs> high quality. And I thought, well, we'll end it there, because I don't think we're going to get any better than that. Um, but of course... Some horses don't have silly names, they have perfectly normal names. And I was wondering, Andy, do you have a story about a horse called, say, Patrick? I do. And that's a perfectly formed segue. Thank you for bringing in Patrick. <laughs> now, Patrick is a four-year-old Shetland pony who works as a therapy pony, visiting recovery groups, hospitals and mental health wards in the Torquay area, also in Devon. Not far from Exmouth, we're focusing on that part of the country today. Sounds lovely. He's also been a regular at the Grade 2 listed Drum Inn in Cockington, just outside Torquay. Apparently, local newspapers report that he would often visit the thatched roof pub with his owners, Kirk and Hannah Petrakis, and graze in the garden in his interaction pen while they enjoyed a quick drink. And Patrick also has been named... Patrick, because he was born on St. Patrick's Day and apparently enjoys the occasional sip of Guinness, which is a nice little detail. But the bad news is that Patrick and his owners have been brought crashing down to earth as the council enforcement officers have told the pub they'd need planning permission if Patrick wants to continue grazing in the garden. They say the land needs to be reclassified from pub garden 
to official grazing land. <laughs> so Kirk and Hannah are obviously very sad about this and they've begun removing the fencing surrounding Patrick's pen. Mr. Patrakis said it was a very emotional afternoon having to take down Patrick's interactive pen at the Drum Inn Garden. Someone made a complaint to the council. It feels very unfair. The, the other element to this story, which I haven't mentioned, is that Patrick, not only is he obviously... A local, locally loved by the people of Cockington. He is also unofficially the honorary mayor of Cockington, which adds a whole new dimension. What sort of powers does he have in that role? Like, can he sort of... Because sort of, if there's a planning... If the issue is planning permission, can't he just overrule it? And then he can just go and drink Guinness wherever he wants, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you're, are you leading me to say that he would say nay to <laughs> I mean, we have sort of feel like we've done that joke already, yeah. so I don't think we should get back to it. But... Uh, a spokeswoman for the Drum Inn said, unfortunately, this looks like it could be the end of Patrick's time at the Drum. Like most people living in the area, I'm surprised by the hardline attitudes councillors have decided to take about a pony. Perhaps they are a little bit concerned about their own performance, given that Patrick is going to give them a run for the money and they were worried about the competition. I mean, there's some real edge to that quote as well. Like <laughs> they were intimidated. by That's why they've done it. They can't put him in his grazing area anymore because he's, he's embarrassing the local politicians. <laughs> Quite right, Patrick. That's what we should be doing more of. So we hope that there might be an appeal forthcoming towards the, towards the council and they might reconsider and Patrick can be reinstalled so the good people of Cockington can enjoy interacting with him and maybe the odd pint of Guinness. What a lovely future that would be. And obviously, if you are in the area, you want to let us know what that's, how that story ends up. You know where to find us. We'll do as many podcasts about Patrick as we can get away from because there aren't enough Guinness drinking horse mares in this town and we will cover it every time it happens. We will be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, please make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guest, Ed Wallace, and of course, our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.